Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. As we begin a new year, perhaps a good time to look at where we've been and where we're going in the world of travel. I'll be talking to Scott McCartney, travel editor of the Wall Street Journal, to Brian Kelly, the founder and CEO of The Points Guy, and to two CEOs of airlines that really stood out in 2021 for doing the right thing and still providing excellent service. Christine Widener, the CEO of TAP, TAP, the airline of Portugal, and Akbar Al-Bakr, the outspoken CEO of Qatar Airways. And then, a great conversation with Mark Seal, the author of a most entertaining book, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, the real story of the making of The Godfather. Yes, it's also a travel story. But first up, I'll talk about the story of one airline and how it survived more than just the COVID crisis to become, at least in my book, the International Airline of the Year. Here's my conversation with the CEO of Qatar Airways, Akbar Al-Bakr. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. 
So let's talk about where you've been, where you are, and where you're going. Uh, I think it's safe to say we've had a, a 20-month period of huge disruption on a global scale. And uh, this airline has been tested before. You, you had a blockade at one point where you had to rearrange your entire flight schedule. You had to go to places you never thought, around countries you never had, had to do it. Uh, thankfully, that's over now. But now you have another blockade. It's called the virus. And, and, uh, and you've been able to maintain your schedule. You've been able to adapt quickly. And as opposed to some other airlines, you haven't cut on service. Well, you already said where we were. You already <laughs> said where we happened to be. And now, of course, uh, where we are going to go. Uh, Qatar Airways is a very resilient airline. And not only that we are resilient, we also make sure that when passengers trust us in booking their flights with us, that we don't let them down. The pandemic hit us all of a sudden. Overnight, airplanes were grounded, airlines suspended travels, government closed their doors. And in your case, it's global. Exactly. And, you know, we are a small country with, uh, with a global hub and a global airline. So we had to show that we are committed to our passengers. We will not let them down. And we decided from day one that, yes, we will ground airplanes and shrink our network, but we will continue to fly to destinations where we knew that we had passengers in big numbers that were stranded. And we became really the airline that is going to take places to their homes safely. And I'm very proud to say that Qatar Airways uh, today uh, is a recognized airline that is committed and uh, we always take challenges and continue to do our job. When you had to pivot, you had to pivot quickly. So what did you actually do with your route network? Because you had employees, you had planes, you, had, it, you just can't you know, do something in a vacuum. We did several things. First, like I told you, we didn't stop. And places where we suspended, because we had to, we really didn't know what was going to happen. So places where we suspended flights, we undertook to give refunds to our passengers who really, that was their first priority. Now we are not going. Qatar Airways has stopped coming to our uh, city. So what do we do with the tickets we have purchased? And so you, you we know, give them... Yeah, you we gave them, them. Yes, we gave them confidence that Qatar Airways, when you have purchased a, f uh, a, a passage on Qatar Airways, that the amount of that passage is guaranteed. And within uh, just over two months, we gave nearly 1.8 billion US dollars worth of refunds. Well, the thing that you bring up is a very interesting point, because if you go back and look at the number one complaint in the United States from passengers, it was their inability to get a refund from airlines or hotels or cruise ships or tour operators when the trips were canceled through no fault of their own. Yeah, but we are not in the United States. We are in the <laughs> Middle East, and we are very sensitive to our reputation. And, you know, once you build your reputation, people don't forget. And that was very important for us. Anyway, going back to your, your, your question, uh, we needed to stop for a while and look at what next we have to do.
And this is exactly what I'm coming back to, which I already said. We continue to fly, and gradually, within the next three months, we started ramping up again. But as all airlines, and as my responsibility to my shareholder, the government of the state of Qatar, I also had to conserve cash. Because, you know, our an airline is a, a very cash-hungry uh, business. So we unfortunately had to lay off very painfully nearly 15,000 employees. Wow. Most of them in uh, customer services, cabin crew, uh, and pilots. But one thing I told them that I promise once we start ramping up, we will take you back. I will come to that a bit later. And what we did is we needed to look at different opportunity to do business with the airplanes that was on the ground. And because also shipping got disrupted, industries Cargo. got disrupted, there was no more airplanes flying, so there was no more belly space for cargo. We started flying passenger airplanes as freighters. So you took the seats out? Uh, not in the beginning. In the beginning, we just put the cargo in the belly and in between the seats and in the overhead bins. <laughs> and eventually... Every space you as, could find. As the, as the pandemic uh, was escalating, we then decided that there will be a number of airplanes that we will not be able to use for an extended period of time. So we started removing the seats. And then having nearly 130 cargo flights with only having just under 30 freighters, people were wondering how we were managing this <laughs> and the volumes we were carrying, becoming the largest cargo carrier in the world, minus FedEx and UPS, actually their package carriers. And then they discovered how we were doing it. And then they followed. So it's important for me to, uh, to get the satisfaction that Qatar Airways is always a leader and the others are followers. Listen, you haven't hesitated to say that uh, for a then, long time. And then what we did is as the vaccination started to roll out and countries started to get a bit comfortable, we then continued increasing our flights to those countries. And in six months after the pandemic hit us, we were back to nearly 90% of our fleet in the air. Wow. Which was really uh, very satisfying to me. But meanwhile, we also started to re-recruit people that we laid off, whom I had promised I would take them back. You brought them back? Yeah. And not only we brought them back, also the minimum reductions in salary that we had given to people that were working, we gave those uh, uh, salaries back. And people that we laid off, and we re-recruited them, we re-recruited them in the same grades that we laid them off so that they don't lose their seniority in the airline. So all this we did for two things. One is to start serving our passengers again. And secondly, is to appreciate people who built Qatar Airways. Qatar Airways was not built by me. It was built by my team and the thousands of young men and women 
that have delivered the vision of the state of Qatar to have the best airline in the world which I'm very proud to say for several continuous years we have received that accolade which no other airline has ever done. Well, let's talk about Qatar for a second because a lot of people listening to the show may not even know where Doha is. I mean, you are geographically situated in a perfect place to be a global airline with Doha as the hub. This is the sad part of the American knowledge about the world. We are the forefront of their allies in the Middle East. You have a huge American airbase here. Actually, I think the largest outside anywhere from the United States. And people there, they don't know. We are right in the middle, in the heart of the Middle East. A very stable and safe country. And a, a, a country that is an ally of United States. This is exactly what I want to do also as my job as chairman of Qatar Tourism. Let's talk about perception here. Because even today, at the end of this year, as we're talking to you right now, when I tell people I'm coming over to Doha, they go, oh my God, be careful, be safe. Are, are you crazy? I went, no, you're crazy. I said, I've never felt unsafe here. I've never felt threatened here. Uh, if anything, I felt indulged here and entertained here. And, and the hospitality is phenomenal. And one of the reasons why we're talking to you is because when I look at all the other airlines and all the other promises that they have made, I have to say that you have consistently delivered on yours. And, and the, the, when I tell people, you got to fly this airline and you, know, you, can, you don't necessarily have to go to Doha, go through it, just see it. And they come back and they go, I had no idea. Well, I must admit that there is a very negative perception of the Middle East. But people don't realize that Middle East is not a small region. And Qatar is voted one of the three most safest countries in the world. So, you know, this is already an accolade that people should recognize that uh, conflict zones in the Middle East are not at our doorstep. Actually, there are several hours flying time away from our country. So it is like there is uh, something happened in New York and people in uh, Houston say we should not get out of our house. <laughs> you know, so uh, people should understand that uh, not everywhere you have to uh, be cautious. Uh, I'm glad that you have been here many times, uh, Peter, and you have seen how hospitable, how friendly, how welcoming we are, regardless what is your religion, your belief, or your color. And this people should know and not listen too much to the negative media and like now the new word in the uh, English dictionary, uh, fake news. <laughs> so um, I'm glad that, uh, that uh, people have started to realize that uh, there are destinations in the Middle East. Qatar is one where they can come and have a good time, enjoy themselves, and taste the real Arabic hospitality. You know, you mentioned conflict zones. One of the other reasons why I acknowledge you is that during the United States withdrawal of Afghanistan, you didn't hesitate 
you sent your planes in there on rescue missions to evacuate so many people. It was a, a, a very bold decision on part of my government, the state of Qatar's government, and the airline. We were flying there. We had no insurance cover. We had to self-insure our airplanes, land there in a, an unbeknown situation, and bring people out where thousands of people were stranded, many of them Americans. And this is, shows the commitment the state of Qatar has to peace and uh, inclusionness of every single community and people and be there when an ally is asking for our help. You know, now I'm going to let you put your hat on as Minister of Tourism. There's a small little event happening next November. And a world event is taking place. And is been awarded to the state of Qatar. We have invested over 200 billion. Say that again. We have invested 200 billion into infrastructure and preparation for uh, the, the World Cup. And we want to give an experience to the world that they have not had before. You know, many countries could uh, and wanted to host but the experience that we want to give, it's not only hosting, but the experience we want to give, we want it to be the best. One of the and I, I would like to invite people from the United States, forgetting about all the fake news, <laughs> coming to Qatar and enjoying the safety, tranquility, and the hospitality of the people of Qatar. So you're inviting me? Most certainly. Okay, I'll be there. Final game? Anyone you want. Oh, done deal. Now, I have to ask another question, which I think is fascinating. How you built the stadiums and what you're going to be doing with those stadiums? Uh, several stadiums uh, that are uh, eight in all, world class, to the highest standards. And they're already being tested now with the current uh, Arab Cup that is taking place. It is really a mini FIFA for the, uh, the, the Arab world. And uh, it has gone by perfectly as planned. Everything that we expected it to be there is there. And what we will do, of course, we will, uh, we will use uh, these stadiums for different venues because at the end of the day, Qatar is the, the sports capital of the Africa Middle East region. We have facilities world-class like no other country. Hey, nobody and, else has, nobody else has an in-flight video on safety featuring a, a soccer team. Exactly. And, <laughs> what we, and what we will do is once FIFA is World Cup is finished, a couple of those stadiums will be dismantled and exported uh, to uh, another friendly country. $200 billion investment says a lot about what you're trying to expose the world to. It's not $200 billion. It's $200 billion our money which is nearly $60 million. Okay. $60 billion. I okay, mean. you scared me a little bit there. Okay. Yeah. $60 billion is pretty scary, too. Yeah. So what goes on beyond that now? Because the event itself is only going to last a couple of days. Beyond that, what's the hope? Uh, when I talk about this investment, it is not only in stadiums. We have put an extensive uh, uh, metro system, we have hugely upgraded the entire infrastructure, road network in the country. 
Uh, we have upgraded all the other facilities. And this will stay because, uh, you know, Qatar is going to grow. It's not only uh, depending on the World Cup. And, like I said earlier, that we are the sports capital uh, of uh, this region and the um, uh, Middle East Africa region. And we will keep on having events and the stadiums are dual purpose. You could make it into a theater, you could make it into, uh, uh, you know, e-game uh, uh, facilities. Uh, the stadiums are air-conditioned. Never ever the world has seen an air-conditioned air stadium that is not completely enclosed. So, you know, you have Well, there's one guy who's doing it, technology. I think his name is Dr. Cool. Uh, whoever it is, I don't know because I'm not involved in, in the... <laughs> in I've been the, reading up on this guy. You know, he's he's and, like the, and, the world... To, and, yeah. and, you know, when we have all these facilities, yeah. you can do so many other things. So it is not a waste. Actually, it is an investment not only for FIFA, but for the future. Now, I've got to give everybody a sense of place. You and I are talking today inside a world-class airport, cutting-edge... Hamad International, HIA, here in Doha. I can speak from experience here because we did a one-hour special on this airport with my host, otherwise known as you, driving around in the cart and showing me all the facilities. I mean, of all the airports that I've seen in the last 20 years, and I should put this in perspective, we haven't had a new airport open in the United States in over 25 years. So we're way behind. But the investment and the design of this airport is a model, I have to tell you, for all other airports because it was built by an airline. You know, uh, airports are normally built by uh, architects or, 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 or designers. But by people who don't fly. <laughs> exactly. But when it is an airline that is building an airport, then we know what exactly is required. Uh, Peter, if you go around this airport, which you have done when you uh, filmed me, we have no wasted space. Every single corner of the airport is utilized and is designed to the highest standards. And once again, I would like the American public to fly on QR so that they transfer through our hub at Hamad International and see what we have achieved, that no other airline or, frankly speaking, country will be able to achieve the high standards that we have here and once we finish the expansion in time for the FIFA uh, 2022 by next September this will take Hamad International to an even higher level of standards of safety security and quality of the product which has never ever been achieved by another airport I have to tell you, every time I hear about, I have to change planes at another airport, I have the, the worst vision of running and missing and getting connected and not connected. Never had that here. No, because we are so well organized and we know our business. Like I mentioned, an airline running an airport, know exactly what the passengers require. Then an airport being run by an investor that is just cutting corners all the time and don't give a damn if the airline's reputation is damaged by them giving a crap service to the passenger. I was waiting for that word. I've never talked to you <laughs> in all of my years together where you didn't use the C word and you just did it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> but I agree with you. 
I agree. Every airline that I know complains because they have to go get permission from some airport authority that doesn't understand the airline. Exactly, and this is not the case here because the entire team that is responsible for running the airport are staff from Qatar Airways. So the buck stops with you. Exactly. My thanks to Akbar. In Europe, the challenges of keeping an airline going were just as intense, and one airline was able to navigate this mess better than others, and in the process, even improve their service and protect their route network. TAP, the airline of Portugal. I call them the European Airline of the Year, and I speak with its CEO, Christine Widener. Welcome, Christine. Thank you, Peter, and thank you so much for the invitation. Well, it's more than just the invitation, it's the acknowledgement that you guys have done a great job. You know, I want to give you some background about my experiences on TAP, which predated your arrival there. Of course, your history goes back to, uh, to Air France and the Concorde, and of course, New York as well. Uh, and we'll get to that. But my experiences on TAP going back to the 70s was, and I'm sure you've heard all the jokes, TAP stood for take another plane. Um, it was, uh, I, I, I didn't, the route network wasn't really strong. It's on-time performance really wasn't strong. The aircraft that operated wasn't really cutting edge or weren't really cutting edge. And then things started to change. And uh, you really built up a route network. You got you know, state-of-the-art planes. You started flying to locations you'd never flown before, or you did a whole lot better job of flying to the ones you did fly to before. And I guess the question I had to ask you, is this all predated, of course, COVID, and then COVID happened? Tell me how you've been able to um, to weather that storm. Uh, thank you, Peter. And uh, yes, uh, like uh, you can imagine, uh, it's been a very, very difficult two years. Uh, we are now end of 2021. Uh, we are a little bit smaller than we were in uh, 2019. We still are flying uh, uh, less ASKs that we were flying before, but uh, we have a plan, like uh, many airlines uh, uh, have, to uh, be better, be better in uh, in cost, meaning have a lower cost, be better in, in, in investing in quality of service and doing better what uh, we think are assets, our networks, our routes. Um, we are, you know, our destinations are mainly long haul South America and uh, North America and also Africa, and uh, we have been uh, flying to most of these destinations uh, during the crisis, with some exception. And now we are reinvesting in them with a slow recovery of the industry. We have a modern fleet uh, with uh, the 321LR, uh, Neo, Airbus that are really efficient in fuel, but also uh, in. Uh, you know, the capacity we have to fly them around, you know, our destination. So, and the service on board that is delivered by wonderful cabin crews that knows what service means, being generally Portuguese and, and friendly. But we are still uh, challenged by what is uh, going around us in our industry with a fifth wave. Uh, we have to be flexible. Now it's about adaptability, flexibility, and capacity of airlines to adapt. Uh, because the world can uh, doesn't, you know, uh, stop and is changing every day. There are news every day, so there are borders that will open and close, and there are new restrictions. So it's about uh, having the capacity first to be aware as soon as possible, and second to react and adapt to what is going on 
around us. But uh, yes, I think TAP is ready. TAP is working hard, uh, like uh, our colleagues. And uh, we believe in a slow recovery of industry, and we want to be there to just, uh, you know, do our best to deliver a good quality of service with a good network to our customers. Well, Christine Widener, the CEO of TAP, you said you're smaller than you used to be. I remember you used to have roots to Asia, correct? Yes, and uh, yes, we don't fly to Asia anymore. We are a member of Star Alliance, so we have uh, our um, co-chairs with our colleagues of Star, and that's how we work today, and we are uh, focusing on what we think are the core core route, uh, first long haul destination, of course, we are very strong on Brazil with 11 destinations direct from Lisbon. We have seven destinations in North America and in Africa, we connect a number of, uh, you know, uh, African destinations, not only um, the communities uh, that we want to reconnect to Portugal, our, our Portuguese communities in Africa, but a number of different, different markets that we think are really key and core to our business. Of course, when we go back in history and look at Portugal from the 1600s and the 1500s, we understand why you're in Brazil. <laughs> we understand why you're in Africa. Um, of course, are you still flying to places like Angola? Absolutely. And uh, we are very proud to uh, fly to Angola. Uh, it's not uh, you know, easy every day because of a restriction, but uh, now things are starting to be a little bit stable, too, but we are watching the evolution of the virus. Um, but uh, yes, the uh, relationship between Angola and Portugal are very strong. There is a, a, a history, has been a long history between the two countries. And we are very uh, proud to welcome a, a number of uh, customers to and from Angola as, uh, as we are doing every day. Of course, some airlines are structured on point to point. You have your hub in Lisbon. It's possible now. In fact, you've been doing this for a number of years. And I really liked what you did a couple of years ago that if you were flying, Uh, to Lisbon, you could then go on to any one of like 45 other cities that you flew to. Uh, You had a great deal for that, didn't you? Yes, and we still, uh, most of our traffic, uh, it's, uh, you know, our core business is a hub and spoke, uh, you know, network. Um, And that's quite important uh, in our business model and the sustainability of, of our company. In addition to that, we're offering a unique stopover product uh, in Portugal. When our customer, you know, want to stop in Portugal, they can do that uh, with the same ticket and they can visit Portugal that is offering a broad range of opportunities for business and for leisure. So, yes, we are hub and spoke carriers connecting Europe to long haul destination and the other way around with a a fantastic or the best possible stop, you know, in Europe being uh, Portugal. Well, you mentioned stopover uh, for business and for for personal or leisure, but let's talk about business because depending on who who you talk to, business travel is not coming back uh, till 2024 or it's slowly coming back in 2022 and 2023 or the business and meetings business may not come back till 2024, 2025. What trends are you seeing? We see different trends and fully agree with uh, your comment. Um, The trends are showing different recovery patterns uh, if we compare um, corporate business travel to uh, leisure. In corporate business travel, maybe more resilience when we look at uh, small and medium enterprise compared to the large corporation. 
In fact, uh, large corporation discovered that uh, video conference is an amazing uh, a tool to to quite uh, work on uh, and to replace some meetings. Small and medium enterprise maybe have a, a different perspective and uh, start to fly a little bit more. So, uh, but a very slow recovery uh, in business travel. It will take uh, significantly more time for business travel to recover with the difference between big corporation and small enterprise. Sure. On leisure, um, what we see is that um, in some countries, um, I think that there is a definitely a frustration for a number of our customers that we are not able to fly and ca- cannot wait to fly because, as everybody knows, uh, travel is a business of freedom, uh, being free to, there's a freedom to fly where you want, when you want. And uh, some of our customers now prefer to fly maybe less, but uh, uh, spend more time and maybe spend uh, more money by trick, but the frequency uh, will be different. So uh, different pace and different behavior recovery, uh, uh, leisure compared to business, but overall, uh, again, we'll have to adapt uh, and um, the behavior and uh, the recovery will be different and the world will be different compared to a world before. But um, uh, our you know, strengths will come from resilience and adaptability. And quickness. You're going to have to do it quickly because things are changing so rapidly, right? Yes. And... Um, well, I'll give you an example. When borders are closed, uh, you need immediately to react because most of the government are taking action, if not immediately, for a few days. So you need to readapt your network. You need to change structure of your flight. You need to cancel some frequencies. We also had to uh, organize flight for some of the community. Portuguese community wanted to come back home in Portugal from some countries after the border closure. So it's a lot of things to be organized. Christine, in the original playbook, and you've been around long enough to know that original playbooks don't last very long. They get thrown out. (laughs) But in the original playbook in the airline business, if you're in trouble, you discount. And whether it's leisure or business, we're seeing that now in in some of the cruise lines coming back on. You had a situation where, you know, you want to stimulate your business traffic. You want to fill that front of the cabin. Have you been discounting? Well, what was a, a little bit challenging Peter is that when you don't have any more demand even if you discount at the end of the day it could not have a, an impact so uh, <laughs> right. and that was a challenge so the demand was uh, very low so um, the activation is not a classical one uh, you could uh, maybe not use the same tools that uh, you use in a normal situation so it was more about reinsurance. It was more about making sure our customers were feeling safe on board. So we have been investing a lot in what we call a safe and clean environment, being on board or being on all the touch points for our customers more than anything else, because that was uh, uh, the main uh, top priority. The second one is the accessibility and our customer could contact us to ask for more information online or through a call center. And we've been surprised because we were not expecting such an increase of a number of calls. So we still are adapting our infrastructure following all the different events that happen, borders, change of network, etc. So we have been learning a lot about the evolution of the expectation of a customer in a crisis environment, whether they want to 
work uh, online with us or offline. And the reality is that um, our customer are expecting a, a much uh, better proximity with us. They want to be reinsured. And for us, it's an additional investment in, in, in service that uh, we are improving now, as we should. What they really want is they want a conversation, don't they? Absolutely. And even if they find the solution or, or the information on, on our website, as they should and should be updated, uh, quite a number of them want to be reinsured uh, on call center, but also when they arrive at the airport. So uh, it's uncertainty. P- people just, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's human. Uh, they want to make sure they did the right thing, that they have the right document. And uh, when they arrive at the airport, that uh, they will have no surprises or um, Something that uh, we should be, um, we are now more aware of than we were in the past. And I think it will change uh, structurally the way we deliver service uh, on a sustainable basis. They really want their hand held. Yes, but uh, the reason also is because uh, the rules uh, change every single day. And uh, <laughs> I know, I know. It's difficult to follow. And even when you're in the airline industry, you receive all the recommendations from uh, your own government, but also all the countries you're flying from and to. And uh, for us, uh, you imagine, we are in the industry and we uh, receive changing every single day. So, uh, uh, let's say you're living with your children or maybe your your mother, your grandmother, and you want to have a, a nice family uh, uh, stay. You don't want to be surprised and have to cancel your, your travel. You want to uh, plan. You want to be uh, to feel safe and to, to make sure that um, your trip will be fine and you will have a good time together. You know, you talked about Root Network. I think it's safe to say that you're back to all of your U.S. gateways now, right? All of your U.S. gateway cities. Everything, including uh, JFK, that we uh, started again in November. And in uh, in the Americas and more in the Car- in, uh, in Caribbean, we just launched uh, last weekend a new destination, uh, uh, Punta Cana, and... Um, from Lisbon, and uh, the first flight was an uh, excellent uh, load factor. It's a very popular destination. So, and I think that uh, this destination has been doing well because I've been able to promote a safe destination like a number of others that we are flying in our network, like Madeira and Azores in Portugal. So, uh, yes, uh, some destinations are doing very well. By the way, you mentioned the Azores. The, you know, the, the westernmost islands in the Atlantic, what a great destination. We did one of our television specials there. We broadcast this radio show from there. I highly encourage my audience to check out the Azores. And the thing that I love the most about the Azores, you're going to laugh, Christine, the bullfights. They don't kill the bull. It's, um, it's more of a bull run than a bullfight, so be careful. You want to stand behind the barricades or you, will be, or you may be lifted in the air. Hey, one other thing I would mention, you mentioned the Root Network. I needed to go recently from, from California to Ireland, and the best way to go, it didn't seem to make any sense until I looked at the map and looked at the schedule, was flying from, from San Francisco through Lisbon to Dublin. And, you know, it, it worked. And you guys were a really great hub. Yeah, it worked. And maybe not everybody realized that uh, if you see a straight line across the Atlantic from Lisbon, in fact, you're in New York. Yeah. So the geography is uh, a little bit different from from time to time, from people's <laughs> perception have in mind. But uh, we are the shortest route through the Atlantic between uh, uh, New York and um, 
and Europe, uh, and that um, and we are flying 321 LRs at even the most sustainable and fuel-efficient aircraft. My thanks to Christine. And then let's look at what's in store for the new year. I'll start with Brian Kelly, the founder and CEO of The Points Guy. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Brian, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Peter. And I think this is my first uh, time staying home for New Year's, and I think 15 years. Uh, so I'm actually looking forward to it <laughs> with the current state of travel as it is right now. Taking a little me bit too. Of a break. I'm look. I'm looking forward to Chinese takeout in ways you can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds amazing. But anyway, but anyway, let's talk about some stuff here because one of the things that happened in 2021, you know, beware of the law of unintended consequences. As the airlines were desperately trying to you know, raise capital, they tapped into something that I don't even think they knew how much it was worth until they looked at it, and that was their frequent flyer programs. Um, and American, Delta, and United started valuing their programs in the billions. American actually valued their program, get ready, at $34 billion. And all three airlines generated an amazing amount of capital in the private sector and in the capital markets from between 6 and $10 billion per airline. So if you take a look at that kind of money, it was easy then to run the numbers and realize that the frequent flyer programs, this bulletin, were actually worth more than the airlines themselves. I mean, that's outrageous, right? It's amazing, and I think it just goes to show just how uh, incredible of marketing programs, you know, that the banks are willing to just buy billions and billions of dollars worth of, you know, future points for travel, for merchandise. It's a huge industry. And, you know, for the people who say, oh, the frequent flyer mile game, it's, it's done with, it's not done with, it's just evolved. You know, these are not frequent flyer, they're frequent buyer programs these days. Exactly. And they're really determining the whole direction of the airlines, which brings me to my next item here from the, on the Price is Right. And that is when the airlines are incurring this much debt, what they were doing even before they raised that money was starting to devalue some of their own mileage program points. Uh, you know, we went from, you could have a chart to realize, you know, the eligibility levels that you needed to get to certain destinations. Those charts are gone. They've gone to a fare-based system so that you get miles based on the money you spent for your ticket, not on the miles you actually flew. That was in place way before the pandemic. They went to dynamic pricing, which I understand from a, from a revenue point of view for a paid ticket, but from a frequent flyer ticket, we're sort of flying blind. We don't know on a day-to-day -day basis, how many points it's going to take to go anywhere. So then 
They've added insult to injury, at least one airline did, by saying, oh, by the way, if you fly on a, a basic economy ticket, you don't get miles for that either. So they're making it hard to redeem, even harder to earn. What's a frequent flyer to do, Brian? Well, Peter, you know, I am an eternal optimist, and I actually don't think it's as doomsday as, uh, you know, some people may think. And I appreciate everyone's opinion on it. Certainly these programs have changed. Um, You know, 10 years ago when I started the Point Sky, you know, it was really easy. 100,000 Delta miles got you round-trip business class to Europe on, you know, Air France, KLM. Pretty simple, right? You know, I I remember the days when you could even tack on an extra 20,000 Sky miles and you could go you know, have a stopover in Paris and then continue on to the Seychelles on Air Seychelles, which was an Air France partner. Certainly, a lot of those deals have evolved. Most of the U.S.-based programs, as you mentioned, are now dynamic, meaning that you can't really bet on a certain price for a certain ticket. But what I will say is now more tickets than ever are up for redemption. And while airlines are definitely increasing the prices for tickets, because why not, right? They create these currencies, they sell the billions of dollars worth of this currency, and then it's brilliant. They get to change how much it's worth. Um, But I will just say it's so much easier today than ever before to earn miles, especially on credit cards, huge sign-up bonuses. So I think you need to look at both sides of the coin. Uh, Yes, it's more expensive to redeem, but many people, myself included, I'm earning more points than I ever have before. So it's not a complete loss, right? I think consumers just need to take a look at their what they spend their money on and get the credit cards that actually reward them uh, for what they want to do. And for many people who don't have many travel plans in 2022, it might be time to switch to a cashback credit card. The one that that got my attention was one from Southwest Airlines, which I believe was also Chase which said that if I spent $149 a year for the card, I would basically, in the first three months, if I spent just a little bit of money, rack up enough miles and bonus points to give me a free companion ticket every time I traveled on Southwest. Now, that's a great deal. Peter, the Southwest companion pass, and for anyone listening who flies Southwest, it's one of the most incredible perks out there. Uh, You know, a lot of airlines will give you one free companion ticket with all these rules attached. Southwest is incredible, and if you qualify for it, which you can do by just getting the credit card, if you qualify for it early in the year, you actually get it for the entire rest of the year and the following. So early in the year, early in 2022, I know a lot of people who get the Southwest credit card, they hit the spend to get to the companion pass requirement, and they get nearly two free years. And get this, you can even use your points to buy a ticket, and then your companion's also free, unlimited for every ticket you buy. Uh, it, it's one of the most incredible deals. And just in general, you know, credit card, you know, the co- credit card companies in 2020 kind of took took the back seat. They waited to see what was going on with the economy. 2021, we've seen a huge boost in offers, you know, 100,000 points. Uh, you know, Capital One just launched their new travel premium card, the Venture X card. Uh, and what, what I recommend is don't just look at the annual fee and say, oh, no, that's too expensive, because the cheaper cards generally have lower offers and lower perks. The Capital One card, they give you more in perks than the annual fee, plus the 100,000 points. So in terms of how many cards should you have, uh, you know, I personally have 25 credit cards. I know I would never recommend (laughs) most other people do that. But my credit card is over 800. But I'm maniacal. You know, you've got to pay them off in full every month because, you know, the interest you get hit with on a lot of these reward cards will negate the value. But if you are disciplined and can pay your bills and, and 
you know, the fact is FICO scores, the biggest factors are debt to credit ratio. So if you pay your bills in full every month, the more credit you have available to you and you pay them off every month in full, it shows, you know, that you're responsible. So your score will actually go up, even though there is a temporary ding anytime you have an inquiry for credit. So, you know, most people in the points world have multiple credit cards, their scores actually go up and you, you know, reap the value. These sign-up bonuses can be easily worth a thousand dollars or more. Oh my goodness. 25 cards. I mean, that I'd become a barricaded suspect if I had that. <laughs> So where do we go from here? Because there's got to, there was a point now, and I'm sure you remember this because I think you wrote about it, where some credit card companies would stop you at the end. You, know, you could only apply for so many cards in a certain period of time, right? Yeah. So I recommend, you know, and every credit card should, on the application will say who's eligible for the bonus. Now, a lot of, you know, credit card offers will, will you know, if you want to get a new credit card, they'll let you upgrade your existing card. For example, if you've got a Capital One Venture card, you want to get this new Venture X, Capital One will gladly switch you to it, no credit pull or anything, but you don't get those valuable sign-up bonus points. What you can do is apply as a new card holder to get the bonus. However, a lot of companies, American Express and Chase, you know, have really clamped down and they will stay on the application. If you have received, you know, any type of, you know, bonus offer within the last two years, uh, you can't get the sign-up bonus. So read the fine print, look back, and you know see when you got credit cards to make sure that you're going to actually qualify for the bonus. And of course, at the Points Guy, we detail each and every offer who's eligible. So do a little bit of research on the front end because it, it's a shame to get a card and then realize three months in you weren't eligible for the bonus when you know you lost out on all those points. Right. I'm I'm still just trying to recover from your 25 cards, Brian. I think you're buying dinner next time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm happy to. I always you got to get it for the points. And I'll also <laughs> recommend to people. So points are one thing. Look, a sign-up bonus is a one-time affair. Look at the earn ratios on that card. You know, what do you spend your money on? Groceries, shopping. Look at what you spent your money on or what you plan to in 2022 and try to get every dollar you spend. My goal is to earn more than one point per dollar. Um, you know, my base card is Capital One Venture, which gives 2x. So on categories where I'm not earning you know, if I'm going out to get a haircut, you know, there's no credit card that gives bonuses for salons that I'm aware of. So I'll put it on a venture. But when I'm out, you know, dining, my Amex Gold gives 4X on dining and groceries. So try to get the cards that, yes, give you big sign-up bonuses, but also give you ongoing points categories. And finally, look at the perks. Perks can give you more in value than, you know, uh, the actual points you earn from a card. You know, especially these days with the airlines going haywire, I anticipate that to continue in 2022. There are cards out there that have travel delay protection. You know, if your flight gets canceled and you've got your family and you've got to pay for last minute hotels, airlines are never going to reimburse you for that. You know, in a very rare circumstances, they're not legally required to do so. But if you put your travel on credit cards with this built in insurance, it gives you that extra layer of protection. My thanks to Brian. Continuing with our look at what to expect in 2022, I have to check in with Scott McCartney, the travel editor of the Wall Street Journal. An early Happy New Year to you, sir. And Happy New Year to you, yes. 
And let's talk about, before we talk about the new year, let's talk about the old year. And one of the columns that you just recently did in the Wall Street Journal, which really caught my attention, and I hope it caught the attention of a lot of people, is an issue that's essentially not been at the forefront, but it's with us every day. I I like to say that about 19% of the traveling public has some form of physical disability, whether it's sight impairment, hearing impairment, or physical mobility impairment. And to what extent the travel industry has accommodated for that, anticipated that, and addressed that has always been an issue for me. I, I uh, you know, I one of the, I'm one of those people who will go to an airport and notice that there's not one check-in counter that's at wheelchair height. I'm one of those people who goes, well, if there's 19% of the people out there with a disability, then and most and so many of them are in wheelchairs, and how why is it that only six percent of cruise ship cabins are handicapped accessible? Things like that. But you went way beyond that, and you started, of course, with the airlines. Yeah, I'll start with the airlines, and this is this really is a very serious issue. Um, uh, you know, there are more and more people um, for whom this is going to be a challenge. Uh, and I, I had some personal experience with this with with my father-in-law um, when he was in a motorized wheelchair. And, and, and the reality is we now have some statistics on uh, airlines, uh, airline damage to wheelchairs and scooters. And about 1% to 2% of all wheelchairs and scooters that they handle get damaged. And the, and the rates are higher for the motorized wheelchairs, which are so important to people who rely on those for, for their mobility. Um, the rates are so high that, that many people in this, in this situation don't travel. Um, the ones that do travel, and I've talked to, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have some um, travel industry executives who are in wheelchairs and, and have to go on business trips, and it's extremely difficult. Um, it's hard to get on the airplanes. It's, it's hard to trust the airlines with your equipment. It's, it's almost impossible to use the bathroom on a narrow body airplane on a domestic flight in the United States or, or anywhere else in the world. Um, and it, 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 when you think about it and you think about um, uh, how it would affect your life if you could not get on an airplane um, because they don't make it physically accessible to you. You're right. uh, I think that's a really serious issue that, that needs to be dr- addressed and can be addressed. Oh, I, I agree with you. But let's back up a second, Scott, and, and, and start at the airports themselves. How many airports to this day? I mean, I look at, for example, the Burbank Airport in Los Angeles. They don't even have jetways. How does yeah, no, you're exactly right. And, and, and what you said about, about counter heights and, and things like that. Um, and even when there is an effort to make things accessible, you know, you can go into a bathroom and there will be an accessible stall uh, and it won't have the, the grab bars in the right place. Um, it, it, and, and that's true in hotel bathrooms. Um, it will be clumsy attempts to actually uh, make a shower usable for somebody who, who needs a shower chair. Um, but the, but everything's backwards or in the wrong place. It becomes um, very difficult. I mean, we, we have seen efforts through the, the Americans with Disabilities Act um, to make facilities, public facilities, um, more uh, easily usable uh, by people who, um, who are in wheelchairs or scooters. Um, and so, you know, there aren't as many curbs, um, but there still are stairs. Uh, and the Burbank Airport is a good example. Um, we ran a picture with a story of a, of a person in a wheelchair looking at a huge staircase in, a, in an airport. 
And, you know, somewhere in that airport, there probably is an elevator, but they're hard to find. They're out, of, you know, it becomes a real challenge um, to, to navigate the airport. Well, yeah, and, and not only that, Scott, I, I got to tell you, using Burbank as an example, I've watched this happen. If you are in a wheelchair and you have serious mobility issues, how do you board the plane? You know how they board you on the plane? With a cherry picker. They put you in, 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 in one of these, you know, lifts that's awkward, embarrassing, somewhat dangerous, time-consuming, and humiliating, if you ask me. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. Um, and the time consuming is a real issue. Even if even if you're at an airport with a jet bridge, they're going to board you as much as an hour before the flight. Um, or, there, or there may be a rush to board you um, right before everybody else. Um, and then you're the last off of the airplane. And, and so you add to that, you got a five hour flight and you can't use the bathroom and you just added another hour on, on the ground to it. Um, and, you know, that cherry picker for the person in Burbank, that situation is basically repeated across the country for um, a, a uh, motorized wheelchair that weighs 400 pounds um, that you, you know, somebody who doesn't know how to use it has to drive it to an elevator or um, a couple baggage handlers are going to try and carry it down the stairs. Uh, you, you put those things on the the baggage belt the, to go into the cargo hold and the and the incline is steep and they sometimes have to be turned on their sides they're not made for that they can fall off those belts um, it's why there are so many um, uh, so much breakage uh, of what's what are essentially the legs of um, people who depend on them and let me give you another example. You know, we talk about some new airport construction, not a lot of it, but there are some new ones like LaGuardia. They're redoing all the terminals. I have to tell you, the carpeting that they put in the new terminals at LaGuardia, it is not wheelchair friendly. Um, and, and it's not even luggage with wheels friendly. I don't know who got this idea of putting in carpet that's, that's actually an impediment to movement. Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, I think carpet goes in because they want to reduce the noise, um, and and that's fine. But um, it, that's a huge trade-off. You're right about the carpet. Yeah, I think the other thing with with new airport construction, we see this all over, but it, it's true even at uh, tiny little LaGuardia. Um, the distances you have to walk are extreme. Um, and it, it becomes very difficult for somebody. It may be um, for many travelers, the walks are so long that they have to resort to wheelchairs um, when, when they wouldn't normally have to do that. And it, it becomes a real challenge if you're in a wheelchair already, uh, especially if, it, if, it, um, if it's a manual powered wheelchair. And luckily I am able to walk. The other day I was at LaGuardia and I had to go take an American Airlines flight. And when I, I, you know, I decided just to time it, not to time it in terms of time, but the number of steps I took. You know, you have that little function on your iPhone. And so I started, I, and I, fly, I was flying down to D.C. and coming back the same day. So I started it, took the flight, came back. You know how many steps I did? Take a guess. Uh, I'd say a couple thousand. 11,000. <laughs> so, I mean, look, I got my walk in, but... That, that's not the point. And, and uh, we, we have one other issue, too, that I want to bring up, and that is in the cruise industry, the cruise lines have done a relatively good job of making their ships uh, 
accessibility you know, compliant. Uh, they've ramped a lot of areas. They've widened doorways uh, for, for the handicapped accessible cabins, even though they don't have enough of them. But they forgot one thing. It's called the ports. There are so many people who will take a cruise who are trapped and on the cruise ship and they can't go on shore excursions. They can't sure. go on the ports because there are no. it's all steps and there's no way to get around it. And I, I've always said that if the cruise lines wanted to do something in an ecumenical, industry-wide way, all they'd have to do is hold a press conference and say, effective immediately, we're not going to be sailing to the following 22 ports until they make them accessible to all of our passengers. How fast would they be revamping those ports? Yeah, you know, I, I talked to one person who, who was wheelchair-reliant who, who made the point, if, if, the, if the cruise line executives, if the hotel executives, if the airline CEO would spend one day in a wheelchair, things might change very quickly. And so take a cruise in that wheelchair and and experience those ports and then see how quickly things might change. But is there hope for 2022 when it comes to travel? I, I think there is hope for 2022. I, I think we're, you know, we are working through the recovery from the pandemic. And, and I think that will continue to improve. I, I do think there will be more international travel. But I think I think people need to now take a new caution into account um, when you are traveling internationally. We, we saw with the Omicron variant a few weeks ago that, that governments were very quick to react to any kind of news of a new health threat. The airplane is seen as the carrier of disease now, and some governments are really quick to shut things down, the U.S. government took some pretty serious uh, action as well. And so much like hurricanes or other disruptions that we take into account when we travel, I, I think health risks are going to be a regular part of potential travel disruptions going forward. And we're all going to have to do a little planning for that. So the word disruption is still in the lexicon for 2022. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm afraid so. But what do you see as, as a sign of hope? Um, as a sign of hope, I think uh, I think we're going to have more capacity coming back. I think I think you know we're going to see more business travel through the year. That'll be good for airlines. That'll be good for people getting out on the road ag uh, again. I do think that that it will be a year of fewer disruptions because airlines are going to be able to plan better um, in terms of staffing. Uh, they've had a really rocky 2021. And I just think things are going to be smoother in 2022. Well, you know what? I hope because they couldn't get worse. Uh, or maybe they could. Maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but, but honestly, I mean, you know, it's one thing to say we've learned our lesson. It's another thing to say we've applied it. And, you know, the airlines have, have exhibited behavior in the past that really, by my definition, is like, let's follow the loser. You know, somebody comes up with a stupid idea and then everybody matches it. Um, I hope they've learned that lesson. Yeah, and you know, it'll be an interesting year because there's going to be new leadership at, at several big airlines, um, at American and Southwest. Uh, and, you know, recently new leaders at, uh, at United and Delta, um, they all want to make their mark. They all want to show that they can run uh, big airlines. And so I think that um, that will bring some renewed focus on uh, reliability and dependability as well. And let's hope that they can figure out their schedules that are not just being competitive on frequency, but competitive on common sense. 
<laughs> yeah, common sense and and, uh, and you know com, um, some some sanity in the fair realm as well. Um, I think as uh, as things settle down, um, people will you know be able to uh, find more dependability in cheap fares and and uh, good deals. You know, we saw during the pandemic with United being the, the airline that announced they're getting rid of those draconian ticket change fees. So far, they've all done it. Is that going to last? Boy, I hope so. I, and I think, you know, I alluded to before the, the risk of disruption in, in travel. Um, I, I think airlines are going to have to keep doing that um, because travelers, the risk should not be on the consumer. The risk should be on the company. Uh, and so you, you're just going to have to be able to uh, change plans in the world going forward. Um, now, we have seen in different parts of the world where airlines have tried to, to do away with the waivers on, on change fees and penalties and bring those back. Um, I think that's, that's the wrong way to go about it. And I think uh, as you know, there are still more disruptions with different variants and all, um, they're going to realize that uh, at least in, you know, for the next foreseeable future number of years, um, uh, airlines are going to have to provide that comfort to travelers um, or people just aren't going to book as much. Now, you mentioned, Scott, the transition of the American Airlines CEO, Doug Parker, who's retiring, uh, Gary Kelly from Southwest Airlines, who's retiring. Uh, you have an announcement to make, I believe. <laughs> well, it, it turns out they just couldn't go on without me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to retire myself from the Wall Street Journal um, starting January 1st. Uh, and uh, it, it has been an amazing run, um, a, a, uh, a great career, 20 years um, of the middle seat, 29 years at the Wall Street Journal. Um, but it's time to do some, some other things. And, uh, and so I'm looking forward to that, including uh, doing some more travel myself. And you know what? The fact that you're retiring from the Wall Street Journal, I want to be very clear to my audience, does not mean you're retiring from journalism. You're still going to be on this show. You have an open door to come back as often and as, as many times as you want. And, of course, to be on our PBS show called The Travel Detective, where you've been on for many, many years. So we look forward to continuing that relationship with the honorable, see, I keep calling you that, the honorable Scott McCartney of the Wall Street Journal, at least for the next couple of days, and then it'll be just the Honorable Scott McCartney. You don't need any more branding because you are the brand, Scott. We really appreciate everything you've done. You've been right on the money, cutting edge on that column called The Middle Seat for over 20 years at the Wall Street Journal. Again, thank you so much for everything you've done, and Happy New Year, but you know what? We're going to see you back here very soon. We just won't identify you anymore as the Wall Street Journal. It'll just be the Honorable Scott McCartney. Look forward to it, Peter. Thank you so much. My thanks to Scott. And of course, we wish him all the best on his new chapter. And last but not least, a chat with author Mark Seal. Not exactly an expected travel story until you read the book. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. That classic line from the movie The Godfather. So listen to what Mark Seal has to say, or I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Peter. Great to be here. So, you know, in reading the book, uh, it wasn't just shot on the back lot of Paramount. It was, it was shot on the streets of New York. It was, it was shot in Italy. It was shot in so many different places, uh, which 
basically didn't have to look authentic. It was authentic. I mean, how many different locations are we talking about for this movie? Oh, my gosh, dozens. Because Francis Ford Coppola, the director, insisted on shooting in New York, even though the, some at the studio wanted him to shoot in uh, Kansas City or St. Louis, where the cost would be lower. But he insisted on New York. And you see, you feel New York in this movie. You can, it's so authentic. You can just feel these places. And uh, there's so many iconic places that are gone. Some are so long. Exactly, and, 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 and accessible today. Yeah, you know, like Jack Dempsey's restaurant is gone, uh, where uh, Pacino is picked up, as Michael Corleone is picked up to, you know, gun down the police captain in Salazzo and Louis Italian-American uh, restaurant in the Bronx is now, I think, a yarn store. But uh, the great scene with John Marley and the horse's head, uh, the interior was shot at a... Uh, uh, a mansion, a palatial home called Belays on the uh, Guggenheim Gould Estate in Sands Point, Long Island. That's still there. And um, the exterior, that's the interior, the exterior um, of the of the, that mansion was a different place. That was in Los Angeles. And it was this amazing house there that I think recently sold. It was the... Uh, uh, the uh, home of William Randolph Hearst at one point, and it's in the, it's called the Beverly House. It's in, in the Los Angeles area. But now you have to solve a problem for me, Mark. Let's go back to the horse's yeah. head. That right. was a real horse. That was a real horse. <laughs> it was. It was a real horse's head, and it, it had come from a slaughterhouse for a uh, a just within a few days of that shot. And of course, uh, you know, in Mario Puzo in his novel had written that horse's head scene where they put the horse's head on the bedpost. But Francis Ford Coppola, you know, always searching for authenticity, put it in the bed with John Marley. <laughs> and in the book, I talk about everything that Marley went through uh, in that scene, being locked up in that, in that, hor in that bed for uh, most of a day. Uh, so it was an incredible scene and a real horse's head. I won't even begin to, get, to guess how much that horse's head smelled. Yeah. Exactly, especially with all the windows closed <laughs> and the heat of the light of the light of the lights uh, uh, on Marley in that bed. At the end of that scene, somebody said, "John, uh, would you like to keep those pajamas as a souvenir? They were soaked in so much blood." And he said, "I'll tell you what you can do with those pajamas." <laughs> but I mean, Coppola's attention to detail, to realism, to period. I mean, that movie, even by uh, standards then was 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 a huge cost overrun. Today it would have been almost impossible to make. Yeah, because they had to move around the city to all these various locations. Uh, you know, with a hundred, you know, big crew, and of course the wedding scene at that uh, estate on Long Island that was actually uh, created from several homes, and the the walls and the gates and all that were created by Hollywood. Uh, set decorators most of the walls were all uh, styrofoam and uh but what a place you know you just felt like don corleone's home was just impenetrable you know and it was because it, they collected these homes on long island and i mean on staten island and put them all together and made it look like a fortress but for for well for a large part of what we've seen in that movie we can still go to places where they shot it Exactly. Yeah. In New, in New York, you can go to, to the fillets. I think you can visit that. Uh, and of course, you can go and see uh, 
all these different sites, although most many of them are private residences, so you can't really get inside. But the ex- exteriors are, you know, you can see, I'm sure, from the street. In Italy, though, when they moved to Sicily, it's a whole different story. A lot of these places are accessible. For years, I, I kept this article from the New York Times that said, like, mafiosos retreats peacefully re- repurposed in Sicily, where you can go and stay in these homes that were uh, acquired by police from mafia leaders. I always wanted to do that tour, but the Godfather (laughs) tour, I think, is just as interesting. I want to do a Sleep with the Fishes tour. Me too. I definitely would love to go to all these sites. Uh, Yeah, I can tell you about Corleone if you'd like. Uh, Yeah. uh, Yeah, so Corleone was the town uh, in Sicily that uh, Mario Puzo appropriated for his uh, Godfather family, Don Vito Corleone and his three sons. And uh, the uh, Dean Tavalaris, the uh, art director for Godfather One, visited uh, Corleone. And it was a very industrial town, and it just didn't work for what they wanted to create. So they ended up in a small town called Fonza di Agro. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And so uh, when Michael Corleone and his two bodyguards are walking and they say, uh, you know, that's Corleone, it's actually this little town called Fonza de Agro, and it's this amazingly beautiful hilltop village uh, with the church, bar. The bar is actually down a little bit, but you can visit that little village, and you know you can feel like Michael Corleone walking the hills with his two bodyguards after he's been exiled from America after that double murder. Of course, I always say the best experiences you have when you travel are when your plans don't work and you turn left instead of turning right or you go up instead of turning or going down, and that's when you discover things. One of the great things about this book that you basically describe is how much of the, of the, of the language in the script was ad-libbed, how much of it just happened at the moment. Uh, of course, that means, of course, the title of the book itself, take the, you know, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, which really happened on the set. It wasn't in the script. Exactly. Yeah, so that happened in a desolate stretch of road um, outside of New York in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty. But what I thought was so, thing plays out with the Statue of Liberty to, to the murder scene. And so I thought that was really apropos because here you have these, uh, these mafia, mafia man, men killing one of their own, Poligato, and uh, Richard Castellano. Um, after they shoot Poligato and he's slumped over the wheel, Richard Castellano, who plays Clemenza, comes up to the car and he says a line that was in the script by Mario Puzo and Francis Coppola, which is which was lead the gun. My thanks to Mark, to Brian Kelly, to Scott McCartney, and to the CEOs of two great airlines, Christine Widener and Akbar Al-Bakr. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, just log on to petergreenberg.com. And by the way, Happy New Year, everyone. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.